This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Catherine Cullen. I'm host of CBC Radio's The House. Have you or anyone in your family, your friends, ever had their car stolen? My goodness, I, this is like the, the universal question. I haven't myself, and thankfully because it's a police vehicle, but uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's people in my family, friends, sometimes multiple times stolen, and uh, the stories keep going from there. Nishan Duryapa is chief of the Peel Regional Police, just west of Toronto. I met him in Ottawa this week at the National Auto Theft Summit. Stolen cars have suddenly become a very hot political topic, Chief Duryapa says in his community, there is a vehicle stolen nearly every hour, and it's very much a public safety issue. We here in Peel had an international student who, while he was, you know, working his way through school, was delivering uh, food, food delivery, and he had his vehicle uh, carjacked while he was in it, dragged him, and he lost his life. We've had... Um, in Peel, a vehicle stolen on a driveway with a child in it. And the vehicle, you know, thankfully abandoned a short distance away with no injuries. But the stories are relentless. This week on The House, cracking down on car theft and understanding why so many politicians are suddenly seized with the problem. We're also going to explore the government's plans to make the online world safer. The Liberals want to tackle everything from hate speech to exploitive images of children, but it is going to be tough. And a year after that big national summit on health care, is the system getting any better? First, though, how much can the federal government do to protect Canadians' cars? The House is now in session. We have a crisis across Canada with cars that are stolen every few minutes, and it's completely unacceptable. Ontario's Solicitor General Michael Kersner wants action now. The number of stolen vehicles has soared in the past couple of years, and not just in Ontario, notes RCMP Commissioner Mike Duham. Officers are seeing an increase in violence in how these vehicles are being stolen. Predominantly right now, the large percentage is in Ontario and Quebec, but we are seeing pockets popping up across the country. It's dangerous and disruptive for people. It's also expensive. In 2022, the insurance losses surpassed $1 billion for the first time, according to the Insurance Bureau of Canada. And while Canadians' insurance premiums go up, some criminals are making a fortune. Here's Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner Thomas Carreek. This is a very complex criminal market facilitated by criminal organizations. Spotters will identify vehicles and they're paid between $75 and $100 for their role in all this. The thieves between $3,000 and $20,000, depending on the vehicle for which they successfully steal. Those vehicles are then put in a spot to cool off before a runner will run that vehicle primarily to the Port of Montreal, in some cases to rail yards in the greater Toronto area, and most concerning for us is the traffic along the 401. These vehicles then make their way to the Port of Montreal and the profits are between $60,000 and $80,000 estimated per container and then are sold overseas and can sell for more than double of their value. And the Peel Police Chief told us some of the people involved in stealing cars are teenagers. There are individuals that are paid, and sometimes they're young offenders, they're vulnerable people that are paid $500, $300 just to find a car. The car makers are facing pressure to make vehicles harder to steal. 
but the solutions aren't simple, says Brian Kingston from the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association. This is a game of cat and mouse. These are sophisticated, international organized crime groups that are constantly trying to stay one step ahead of manufacturers by uh, investing in technologies that will effectively break through the security systems. Enter the politicians. Days before the summit, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev laid out his plan. More scanners and officers for Canada Border Services and a crackdown on the thieves. A mandatory three years of jail for three cars stolen. It means no more house arrest for career car thieves. And it means jail, not bail, jail, not bail for repeat career car thieves who are newly arrested on the crime. A push on sentences is something Commissioner Karik would welcome. Only in Ontario, 68% of those convicted serve a sentence of six months or less. We need to see stiffer penalties. We absolutely need to have a deterrence for these crimes. And the Liberals say they're working on it. I think the, the overall message today is that uh, to the criminals out there, we're going to disrupt your activities with everything we have. So, how is the government going to do that? And how long will it take for Canadians to see a difference? Dominic LeBlanc is the public safety minister. Minister LeBlanc, welcome back to the House. Good morning, Catherine. Your government's only announcement from the summit was that you're going to be banning these so-called flipper devices used to hack into cars the day before you did announce $28 million over three years for the Canada Border Services Agency. But is that enough, Minister? No, and we're going to do more. Uh, it's, it's a good start. It would be strange to bring all of those people to Ottawa uh, who have interesting and thoughtful ideas of what we can all do together to deal with this alarming rise of automobile theft and come out of the meeting with precise details of next steps. We took careful notes. We agreed to talk again uh, next week. Uh, People will be working on precise uh, action items uh, over the next few weeks. So we're going to move quickly. Um, We picked up a lot of good ideas, including from provincial ministers, from police leaders. Um, And I thought the part where I learned a great deal was from the automobile industry and the insurance industry, um, who I thought were very effective in offering suggestions as well. I do want to get to the car manufacturers, but I'd actually like to start with the border because that's been the subject of a lot of attention. We hear these stories of people who have their car stolen. They have an AirTag tracker put in their car. They call police and they say, the car is at the port. I can see it. And they still can't get it back. Is there a jurisdictional problem when it comes to this issue? Um, I don't think so. I certainly hope not. If there is, we'll fix it. I wouldn't have thought the jurisdictional, and we did hear the president of the Port Authority in Montreal who was there talk about some of the challenges. Um, One of the things we did, as you noted, was increase the resources of the Border Services Agency so they can scan and open more containers. So what's going wrong there, Minister? Sorry, you're saying it's not a jurisdictional issue, but I think a lot of people have heard the story of, of Andrew who talked to the CBC. This happened to him. What do you tell Andrew about why he couldn't get his car back? Well, so we'll have more CBSA officers that can open more containers and get him his car back. But one of the challenges is the CBSA opens a container, and I visited the port with the Prime Minister and Pablo Rodriguez two, three weeks ago. They open a container that intelligence has indicated may contain a stolen car. They find the stolen cars. Um, That is a, a piece of evidence in a criminal prosecution. 
So they can't just drop it onto a flatbed truck and send it back to Toronto. Uh, the Toronto police or the Ontario Provincial Police have to take possession of that vehicle because it's an exhibit in a criminal trial. It, it, it's it's very complicated, time-consuming um, to do this work. So the most effective way for Andrew to get his car back is not to have it get to the Port of Montreal. First of all, to prevent it from being stolen, to have the local police. The cars aren't stolen at the Port of Montreal. They end up there for export. Um, but if if we can work with local police, disrupt the criminal organizations that are stealing the cars in communities, it's a lot more effective and, we think, uh, efficient to get people's cars back, but more importantly, to prevent them from being stolen. So, so that was a lot of the conversation we had in Ottawa, uh, but we recognize that the, the port needs to uh, become a source of more frequent scanning and searching, um, but it's not the most efficient way to deal with this problem. Okay, let's let's talk about the cars themselves. How important is it that car manufacturers make their vehicles harder to break into? Obviously, this would only apply to new vehicles. So, again, we heard at the, uh, at the meeting in Ottawa last week that there are technologies in some European countries, uh, for example, that are used that make the vehicles harder to steal. So uh, vehicle manufacturing standards are something that we're going to talk to the industry about. Pablo Rodriguez said that at the, at the meeting in Ottawa. It, as you noted, would, we hope, be part of the solution for prospective vehicles for new vehicles being manufactured or imported into Canada. But sadly, a lot of the vehicles stolen are two, three, four years old um, and wouldn't benefit from that new technology. So the manufacturers, if they want clients to buy their cars, I think need to be sensitive to the frustration that people are feeling uh, with the risk of their cars being stolen. This is a very disruptive increasingly violent circumstance that people understandably are very worried about. So the manufacturers have a role to play, uh, local and regional police do, and the border services agency as well. Is there a world where you make manufacturers up their game? Because what you were talking about there seemed to be a suggestion for why it's in their own best interest. Would you be ready to enforce something on car manufacturers? Is that even possible? I don't think it's impossible. I, the transport minister is the one that's having meetings with the manufacturers. And as you know, we have a pretty integrated market with the United States in terms of car manufacturing in North America. So it's again, it's not a quick or simple solution, but it's absolutely one that we're going to look at efficiently and expeditiously as part of a suite of measures that we hope with provincial and local governments and their police forces uh, will bring these alarming numbers down quickly. So it absolutely has to be something that the government looks at. Um, and I know that from my conversations uh, with my colleague, the transport minister, um, he's prepared to take a pretty hard line with them. But their willingness at the meeting in Ottawa was to look with us at what the technological okay. solutions might be. The danger, Catherine, of course, is they're going to say to the consumers of the cars, oh, but uh, the car price increase because mm -hmm. the government forced them to put this particular device in the car. So that's sort of a mugs game, too, that we don't want to fall into. Let's talk about, you talk about the suite of measures. The Prime Minister says the government is looking at tougher penalties for anyone who is uh, participating in auto theft. We hear that a lot of people who get caught stealing these cars are minors. How do you ensure that gangs just don't take advantage of more lenient youth sentencing? 
And that is exactly a concern. We heard from the mayor of Montreal and police leaders uh, last week that increasingly the profile of the people getting caught uh, are young people um, that are, as you say, subject to being recruited by criminal gangs. Um, one of the challenges for us is to crack down, and this is a conversation I have with the RCMP leadership often, is what can they do to crack down on the leadership of these organized criminal groups? So um, sentencing judges will make their decisions. There, there are provisions in the criminal code now that if it's your second or third time when you've stolen a car, or if you're affiliated with an organized criminal gang, or if there's a weapon or violence used like a carjacking context, obviously the sentences are going to be much more severe. So uh, it's not some of our political opponents pretend that everybody, it's a revolving door once you get caught. That's not true uh, in the cases where obviously uh, this is a repeat offender or there's an organized criminal element. But you, but had, the, you had the head of the OPP saying, in fact, 68% of the folks are serving, I believe it's sentences of six months or less. So it's not just Pierre Polyev saying there's an issue. You have the head of the Ontario Provincial Police saying sentencing is an issue as well. Yeah, I, I didn't hear him say sentencing was an issue. He was giving uh, an example of the typical profile of the people that are arrested and convicted. But we've said, Catherine, that we're open uh, to strengthening the criminal code. But just like your example with changing the vehicle standards, that's not going to be uh, so, an immediate solution. J- just, uh, Minister, so I want to be crystal clear. We're focused Thomas, on what we can do right away. Thomas Carreek specifically said stiffer penalties are needed. So I just want to understand here, Minister, do you agree with him? the head of the OPP. We have said we're open to looking at strengthening the criminal code to provide stiffer penalties, particularly for repeat offenders and those involved in organized criminal gangs. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about timing. You've talked about seeing results very quickly, but you've also just explained to us it's a really complicated issue. What is it that leads you to believe that you can see some serious change on this issue in relatively short course? Uh, Because of the increased investments we're prepared to make uh, in police services, the RCMP and their uh, policing partners in Ontario uh, and Quebec principally, because we're prepared to increase resources uh, that the Canadian Border Services uh, Agency would have at the ports where many of these vehicles are exported, uh, because there are new technologies uh, that can be banned, for example, that would allow criminals to copy electronic keys for cars. Um, And I think that from my conversations after the uh, meetings finished in Ottawa, I met with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. Obviously, we talked about this issue too. And these are local police leaders in big and small cities across the country. Um, They're also... Uh, absolutely determined to put more officers in terms of investigating and preventing the cars from being stolen. Um, That's obviously a a challenge. One thing I learned too, Catherine, everybody's focusing on the ports. Uh, Easily one-third of the cars that are stolen are resold in Canada. So there you have a circumstance where, uh, you know, if 35 40% is what the RCMP say to me, of the stolen cars are revinned or fraudulently sold in Canada... Uh, There again, the Port of Montreal is not the proper choke point for that. It's local and regional police figuring out a way to crack down on the people that are fraudulently selling stolen cars. Before I let you go, Minister, I do just want to zoom out a bit here. I heard a lot of people call this a crisis this week. We've talked a lot on the House about the toxic drug crisis that is killing an average of 22 Canadians a day. We know there's a housing 
homelessness crisis in this country. There's record food bank use. Help me understand why this issue, car theft, is the one that's worthy of a national summit right now. Well, Catherine, I think that it would not be accurate to say that our government hasn't been very focused on the housing challenges that Canadians are understandably feeling or affordability issues. The good news is we're working, uh, I think, quite effectively on all of these fronts, recognizing, as you say, that my conversations with the Premier of British Columbia and provincial ministers across the country, the toxic drug crisis uh, is exactly that. It's a source of huge concern. So we're we're not focused only on one issue. Um, we thought it was important to bring a renewed focus on how we can work together with local and provincial police and other orders of government to deal with the auto theft part. Uh, but uh, my colleagues and our government is also focused on exactly those issues and many others that you just identified. Thank you very much for your time today, Minister. Have a great day. Thanks very much, Catherine. Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc. The Auto Theft Summit was the Liberals' idea, but the Conservatives laid out policy planks earlier this week on how to address the issue. Did they scoop the Liberals? We've got two political watchers here to talk about that and many other things. Stephanie Taylor is with the Canadian Press. Joël Denis Belvance is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Hello. J.D., I want to start here with where we ended that conversation with Minister LeBlanc. Why is this issue suddenly such a national priority, not just for the Liberals, but the Conservatives too? Because it, it, it is affecting a lot of people. Uh, a car is stolen every five minutes in Canada. And we've had stories, in one in Brampton that was, I think, uh, told at the summit, but one that also happened in Montreal. A person was getting ready to leave his car got stolen with the baby in the back seat. Mm-hmm. So it does affect, you know, um, everybody's life. Um, it has a cost. Uh, you've got the organized crime that is, you know, profiting from this. And it is generating revenues, not only for the organized crime in Canada, but elsewhere. But I will say this on this crisis and why was it worth it to have a summit? I think it's a side effect of, again, another side effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have the economic side effect of it, housing crisis, inflation, now crime. Steph, days before the summit, Pierre Polyev launched, he actually did a couple days, right, of these policy planks about how to deal with this who would you say is winning the anti-car theft strategy war? Mr. Polyev got out in front, and because he got out in front, the government was playing defense. And that's not mm-hmm. the position the government wanted to take. The ministers who announced this summit did so because they had heard concerns from Toronto and, and Montreal MPs, and they were pitching this summit as a forward-looking, a proactive way to deal with it. And by putting that date on the calendar, it just allowed the Conservatives to, pardon the overused pun, drive in front of them, (laughs) speed ahead of them, (laughs) and put some policy in the window. And I think what was noteworthy is that we actually saw some policy from Mr. Polyev, and that's unique. One of the main things he's criticized on from Liberals and other critics is that he's all slogans and videos, but he actually put things in the window. And what he put in the window actually ended up being a little bit of what the summit concluded with tougher reforms. Mm-hmm. Earlier in the week, Justice Minister Rudy Ferrani said, no, 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 what Mr. Polyev is, is promising is already on the books. The summit ended with the prime minister saying, you know, we're open to looking at some of these harsher penalties. And that allows Mr. Polyev, and yes, he's in the position of opposition, and opposition can be a bit more nimble at times, to say, hmm, that seems a little bit familiar. So on the communication side of yeah. things, 
I, I think the conservatives uh, so, walked away with this. So, so trying to be proactive on the liberals' part, but then that and not working out for them, J.D.? What is interesting is that this summit was in months in preparation. Mm. Uh, it was talked about first last September when the security ministers, public security ministers, met in Bromont in Quebec in September. So it was asked by the Quebec uh, minister then. Uh, the Ontario minister got along very quickly. And then so it was months in preparation, but it got scooped (laughs) (laughs) or or pushed aside by Mm -hmm. one day because Pierre Poilievre was very agile at communication stuffs, stole the show just in front of the uh, Liberal government while it was preparing for that summit. Is there a political lesson here for either team? You know, in in today's world, you have to communicate faster and try to uh, uh, see what the other camp will do. Try to play two heads, uh, two, two, two steps, steps ahead. ahead. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and that's what Pierre Poilievre has been able to do for the last year. That's why he's ahead in the polls. And that's why he's getting so much money from ordinary folks in the coffers. So it is paying off. Okay, I want to turn to another issue. The Yaroslav Hunka affair reared its head again. He is, of course, the Ukrainian veteran who was applauded by Parliament during the Ukrainian president's visit. Uh, Folks only found out later that he fought on the side of the Nazis. Vladimir Putin brought the incident up to support anti-Ukraine, anti-Western propaganda in his interview with Tucker Carlson this week. The prime minister was asked how he felt by reporters knowing that this incident was creating hardship for an ally. Here's a bit of what the prime minister had to say. Vladimir Putin chose to invade a neighboring sovereign country, violating the rights, the sovereignty, the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and violating the rules-based order that underpins the safety, the security of all of us living in democracy, in free democracies around the world. He will, of course, use whatever propaganda he can engage in But I can tell you, Canadians will not be fooled. We also learned this week, Steph, that Trudeau's office had invited Hunka to a reception, whereas the discussion before this had all been about how the previous speaker was responsible for his invitation. How much does this whole affair stick to the prime minister? It sticks and it hangs like a cloud. I mean, we are at the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and supporting Ukraine has been something that this government takes very personally. They want to be seen to be fighting the good fight. I think this matters a lot to the prime minister. And this invitation and this applause and this standing ovation just hangs like a, a cloud. And I think what was significant about the fact that Putin brought this up is he brought it up to Tucker Carlson, who has a large American Western audience. And as we learned this week from the Angus Reid poll, support amongst Canadians is slipping. More people are asking questions than they were a few years ago about Canada's support for Ukraine. So I think when the prime minister says Canadians will not be fooled by this, I think there are more questions than ever. And as we learned a lot coming from conservative supporters about what Canada's role is is here and are we spending too much or or kind of where the end goal is here. And I I don't think that this message being delivered to a Western audience is is really going to help that at all. J.D., the the Liberals are really pushing back on this issue of Ukraine and the Conservatives saying the Conservatives don't support Ukraine. They're looking at this vote on the Ukraine free trade agreement, the addition of a, a carbon tax. The Conservatives don't support that. They say it's all about the carbon tax. Justin Trudeau is being very clear in his messaging that Conservatives don't support Ukraine. Is there a problem for the Conservatives here? In some ways, yes. Uh, I've talked to a Conservative MP from Western Canada this week about this subject, and he said they tried to convince the uh, caucus, the Tory caucus, um, to 
turn or change their position on it, but it, it, they couldn't do it because they were set up to vote against the trade deal because of the mention of the carbon tax. And he said that we need to turn the page quickly on this file and pass on to another subject because it is hurting us in, in some way in Western Canada. But at the end of the day, support for the Conservative is such in those provinces that it will not make a difference. But clearly, it is, I think, an issue that may come back to haunt the Conservative Party. It depends how the uh, war evolves in Ukraine. Uh, so that's going to be a subject, I think, of further debate in Canada. Steph, is there a needle that Pierre Polyev has to try to thread here. That poll you mentioned did suggest that the diminishing support, it's strongest amongst conservatives. Um, Should Pierre Polyev just be fully on the side that we saw most Canadians on, certainly at the start of this conflict, and talking about Canada's support for Ukraine? Or do we need to be listening for nuance in his message, those people who are feeling disaffected? I think what we've heard from Mr. Polyev is that unless he's asked about Ukraine, it's not something he's up and talking about. And the Conservatives do want to turn the page on this. There is a decision made early on that because this mentions a carbon price, a carbon tax, that this is not something they are going to support. And we've heard Mr. Polyev in some of the year-end interviews, he did shift a little bit about why, why take such an ideological position? Why not have any nuance with this? And I think that's some of the other issues the Conservatives have right now is is not just how this is affecting uh, the standings of MPs in, in populations of Ukrainian Canadians, but it gives the Liberals uh, a stick to whack them over the head with that says mega Republicans or very ideological that, that almost looks a little immature to not be able to kind of carve out that nuance when a country like Ukraine has said that they want to be signing their name mm. to this free trade deal that includes the promotion of carbon pricing. So I think Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives, since this uh, came an issue and became controversial, have really started to uh, backpedal a little, little bit and talk about, no, we want to send military aid to Ukraine. We're going to be getting our MPs out and, and making sure that we're sending this message. So this is, on this issue in particular, is the most we have seen him have to play defense since he became the leader. I want to look ahead to next week, J.D. The Auditor General's report on the Arrive Can app is coming. Uh, this is a story that's had a lot of twists and turns, but the sense we're getting is that this report is not going to be great for the government. How significant do you think this issue is for them? It's very significant for the following reason. The Auditor General will probably expose some public mismanagement. And it's going to be a story that is easy to understand for the public because we're not talking about billions. We're talking about a a smaller amount, obviously, 54 million. But the uh, ordinary folks can understand if 54 million was, you know, mismanaged. Mm -hmm. And I think coming at a time when the Liberal Party is such at a low position in the polls, this might be one of the final nail in the coffin of the Liberal government if this is exposed in a way that I suspect it will be. Final nails in the coffin. We are going to end on a dramatic note (laughs) this week. Thank you both so much for your insights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Steph Taylor and Joël Denis Bellevance. Lots more coming up on the House podcast. Is the government ready for what could be the biggest battle yet with social media companies legislation to crack down on online harms. That's in about 10 minutes. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse at cbc.ca. 
We need to be able to show Ontarians and indeed all Canadians that the significant money we're investing to improve our healthcare systems is delivering real results and outcomes for them. A year after the National Summit on Healthcare, Ontario and the federal government have struck a deal on targeted healthcare funding. More than $3 billion will go towards creating primary care teams to increase access to family doctors and to create 700 more spots in med schools. Ontario is the fifth province to sign such a deal, but Canada's leading doctors group says our healthcare systems are still struggling and that it can't continue. Dr. Kathleen Ross is president of the Canadian Medical Association. She's a family physician in Coquitlam and New Westminster, B.C. Dr. Ross, welcome to the house. Thank you. Great to be here. A year after this national summit where $46 billion in new funding was pledged by the federal government, is there any sign Canada's healthcare systems are improving? So I think it's a challenging question because in areas uh, in pockets across the country, we have seen some improvement. We've seen improvement in uh, in some primary care team development. We've seen improvement in new remuneration models that are improving access to, to primary care in some region. But with so many Canadians still facing these significant challenges in our healthcare system, it's, it's pretty easy to feel hopeless. The long waits in the emergency rooms that delayed Uh, waits for surgery, uh, for testing, and more than 6 million Canadians without a family doctor. And and in fact, uh, just recently, there was a Léger poll released that had uh, 78% of respondents stating that they were worried about not being able to receive good quality medical care when they needed it. And you're right, last year, this promise really sparked some hope in us. We celebrated that we were focusing in on the longstanding challenges uh, that our system was facing and and obviously a crucial and critical step towards addressing the gaps in service and reducing our wait times and improving uh, patient care overall. But, uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a long road. Now only five of 13 provinces and territories have, uh, have signed on. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to wait. And I, and I think Canadians overall are... Uh, are losing patience with the pace of change. And of course, you are a voice for physicians in this country. What are they telling you about what it is like to continue to work in the system at this point while they wait for this change? So we're continuing to face a lot of challenges accessing care for patients that we need. We continue to struggle with staffing uh, volumes, particularly uh, you know in our emergency departments, in our ORs, not enough, uh, not enough nurses and not enough of other healthcare workers to, uh, to continue to provide the services that we need. Uh, and we're still struggling with access to, to resources like MRI and CT scan and testing. And of course, there's, there's backlog and long waits for, uh, for surgical care. As Ontario signs this deal for other provinces have, when do you think people in those provinces will start to see more results? So I recognize that it is challenging for the provinces and territories to make the shift uh, from their underlying plans on, underway and, and look to the priorities that were established with these bilateral agreements and the reporting strategies. So this will take time, uh, for sure. We know that money alone is not the whole solution. We have to look at working differently and modernizing our healthcare system. Uh, and this is uh, this is a first step. So while there is light at the end of the tunnel, I think the tunnel is still a long, uh, a long road we have to travel. But working together and ensuring that Canadians can transparently and in an accountable fashion understand where the investments are going, 
understanding what the challenges are and being able to demonstrate incremental progress towards solutions uh, will go a long way to building trust back in our system. For the rest of the country, those who, who aren't in the five provinces where these agreements have been signed, what would you say about the pace that this is taking, or, you know, that we, we, we talked to the health minister, we're going to play some tape from him in a minute. And he says, he's optimistic, he's enthusiastic, change takes time. Um, is it taking too much time? I think that it's a one-year anniversary from this historic announcement, and, and the path forward in many places is still, uh, you know, a little bit cloudy. Uh, and we have to work quickly to rebuild the trust that Canadians have, that care is going to be them, be there for them in their hour of need. And a big part of that is is that open and transparent communication and ongoing collaboration. So Canadians uh, should be looking to clear measurable targets that enhance their access to care and and, uh, and modernizing our healthcare system. And if they can see communication, if they can see incremental steps towards progress, then I think we can rebuild trust and, and some hope in the system. But the collaboration that I see across jurisdictions and across what I would call silos of care in the last year in particular is uh, is cause for hope. Okay, we are going to leave the conversation there. I appreciate your time today, Dr. Ross. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Kathleen Ross is president of the Canadian Medical Association. So what does the federal government have to say about the time it's taking to improve health care? I put that question to Health Minister Mark Holland. We spoke Thursday before the government announced it had reached an agreement with Ontario. I started by asking the minister if he's satisfied with how long it's taking to sign deals with the provinces and territories. Absolutely. Uh, we are going to be announcing the rest of the provinces and territories uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, we've made phenomenal progress. But it was important to get this right. Uh, these agreements are complicated, uh, and it's essential that the money that we're investing, um, uh, that it have maximum impact, and that we really get the indicators right. So we always knew it was going to take, uh, take time. Uh, so I, I'm uh, really excited to announce the rest of the provinces and territories over the next coming weeks. Groups like the Canadian Medical Association say that while they wait, and, and I hear you saying you're satisfied with the pace of progress, but while they're waiting, healthcare providers are propping up a system that is in crisis. If those healthcare providers, the doctors, the nurses, other people who work in the system are listening right now, what would you say to them? Well, first thing is a huge thank you. Uh, what uh, doctors and nurses and all healthcare workers did during the pandemic uh, was beyond anything that could be asked of any reasonable human being. They held up our system in a time of extraordinary darkness, and uh, the gratitude that we have for what they've done is boundless. I think that uh, the second thing I would say is that the spirit which they demonstrated uh, during the pandemic of all pulling in the same direction, of finding solutions, of setting aside differences, is what is imbued in all of the discussions I'm having with my provincial and territorial counterparts. And yes, it's taking a while to get these agreements, to get them right, um, but, you know, I have to say that as I, uh, I you know, and I've just finished a meeting uh, with Minister Dubay, who's the Quebec minister, and a, and a meeting with Mr. Henley from Saskatchewan, that it doesn't matter where I'm going. All health ministers understand the size of the challenge in front of us and are all committed to getting it right uh, and to pulling in the same direction. And when I talk about the solutions, um, the solutions are incredibly exciting. So the challenges are enormous, uh, but I think, uh, I think collectively we're up to the challenge uh, and that uh, for those that are doing extraordinary work now dealing with all of the backlogs and challenges that come out of the pandemic, they say, hold on a little bit longer, uh, help is on the way. Well, and I guess you, you said 
talked about being excited about the solutions. For people who are asking themselves, it's been a year. It's not clear to me that this summit has made meaningful change in the healthcare system. How do you respond? Well, it's going to take time. You know, I, I think we have to acknowledge the uh, the problems that existed in our healthcare system are longstanding, uh, and that there really has been an effort to uh, to address them, but not in the kind of systematic way that we need. Uh, and it's not going to be fixed overnight. And that the uh, a lot of the solutions that we're putting into place uh, as a result of these bilateral agreements and the negotiations and things that we announced um, over the last couple of months. Uh, you know, it's going to take a uh, it's going to take a little bit for that to come into force and effect. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we have one of the best health systems in the world, and underpinning the changes that we're making um, are, are are really a deep transformation of our healthcare system uh, and a determination. Uh, I think, and it doesn't matter whether or not it's a conservative provincial government, a new democratic provincial government, uh, or a territory, or uh, you know, the CAC in Quebec. Uh, that there's a, a real spirit of cooperation to get this done and to get it right. Uh, and as I say, it's not going to change overnight. Uh, but people are going to see that line of progress, not just in, in how they feel, uh, but in indicators. You know, one of the really critical things of the deals that we've signed is for there to be common indicators that were um, developed by health experts to show the health of our uh, health system. And people are going to be able to now see uh, in data, year over year, in metrics, how their health system is getting better and improving. Okay, we're going to leave the conversation there. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland. The term online harms casts a wide net, from the rise of online anti-Semitism and Islamophobia to horrific stories of the sextortion of young people, like two recent cases in B.C. There are a lot of pressing issues that could be addressed by the long-promised federal online harms legislation. It's something the Liberals have repeatedly pledged to do since 2019. Instead, we've seen years of consultation and study... Then, just a few days ago, the justice minister suggested Canada is gearing up to introduce a new law. So what could it look like? To discuss, I'm joined by Emily Laidlaw, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. She's a professor at the University of Calgary, and she co-chaired the expert panel that advised the government on this legislation. And in studio in Vancouver, Matt Hatfield. He's the executive director of Open Media, a national advocacy group that supports an open internet. Welcome to the house to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Emily, these are issues, online harms, that people are struggling with every day. Why do you think it's taken so long for the government to put forward legislation? It's really hard legislation to write. And I I think one thing I want to emphasize for listeners is this is different than dealing with the types of online harms where you're going after the primary bad actors, right? The person who's sextorting a child or is posting hate propaganda or whatever that is, what we're looking at here is what are the responsibilities of the social media companies of these platforms? And that's taking place in a global environment. No matter where you turn, this raises issues of freedom of expression. Some of the solutions are actually technical solutions. And so it's hard to get it right. It takes quite a bit of effort and finessing. And not everyone's going to agree on the final result. 
Emily, it could also be very, very broad, right? Hate speech, exploitative images of children, and now it seems perhaps AI deepfakes could be involved too. Help us understand what some of the most important ways are that this could alter how people behave online. Well, I think that the first thing to remember is that social media and the role they play here, it's its not just in terms of moderating what we, you know, the, the content that we post online. It's also about their algorithms. It's what they push to children. You know, if they're pushing content that feeds, um, you know, suicidal ideations, if it feeds eating disorder contents and so on, right? And so what we have to think about here is, what do we want these corporate actors to be doing in terms of consumer protection? The things that are most harmful that we should be taking a look at, well, federally, they're actually quite restricted. I mean, jurisdictionally, really what we're looking at are crimes. So the main ones would be hate propaganda, terrorist propaganda, incitement to violence, intimate image abuse, which I think includes deep fakes. Those were all the key ones that were already on the table when the government first made their proposal in 2021. What we need to think about more broadly is what is the extent that we also want to include within this things like sextortion or maybe harassment. I mean, there's all kinds of crimes that take place online. Um, and, and the one that I forgot to mention, of course, one of the key ones would be the spread of child sexual abuse images. So, Matt, Emily has outlined some very serious concerns that this legislation we expect would seek to address. But you have concerns about what the legislation itself might entail. What's your biggest worry? Yeah. So the government took a first stab at this back in 2021. They put out a white paper that more or less outlined what looked like a pretty complete package of what they thought they were going to do on online harms at that time. And there were a lot of very serious issues with that proposal at that time. So it took a very simplistic, very punitive approach that I think would have led to the removal of a lot of lawful content. Uh, and it also took a very sort of surveillance-based approach where platforms would have been required by law to hand over to law enforcement immediately and automatically quite a bit of content if there was a possibility it qualified as illegal, which I think would have led to essentially a surveillance net for a lot of very lawful and, and even important activities by people in Canada. Things like if you were going to a protest and there was a possibility that protest might have some people at it who committed crimes or committed acts of violence, you might have been automatically reported by you know Facebook or another provider to law enforcement that you were doing that. And that rose uh, huge alarm bells for us at the time. Um, it was a very, very criticized set of proposals. And I think that's a major reason the government has taken so long for their next step, uh, mm -hmm. is they have, to some degree, heard the message and are trying to do better in this next step. So, well, that's what I want to ask you. So trying to do better, how much faith do you have that they can resolve those concerns that you raised? I worry. I mean, I, I worry about how much they've actually learned. And as Emily said, like some of these are actually very hard technical problems. I think many of us think there are some things the government could do quite safely, but as to how much their legislation is going to be focused on the things that it makes the most sense for them to do versus how much it's going to be sort of chasing things in the headlines and uh, just wanting to sound like they're being very tough no matter the impact, I, I'm not sure where it's going to come down. Emily, when it comes to the concerns, I'd like to play some comments from Fatima Abdallah of the National Council of Canadian Muslims. These were back in 2022 reacting to what was being proposed by the government at the time. Let's listen to what she had to say. Because it is regulating social media, one of the regulations it is doing is that uh, you can report accounts that you think are promoting terrorism and extremism as, as 
online harm or online hate, and those accounts would immediately be taken down. That might sound reasonable until one uh, considers how broad and and vaguely defined terms like terrorist activity, terrorist content, and and terrorism are, which, which are all terms used in the proposed regulations. Now, of course, we're still waiting to see what the government is actually going to do now, Emily. But how does the government address those kinds of concerns? Well, I entirely agree with her. And that was one of my primary criticisms of the proposal of the government in 2021. I think that in an effort to sometimes address and protect marginalized and racialized groups, right, that are the subject of hate speech, that they actually end up opening up a can of worms and it ends up targeting those individuals. And we've seen that again and again with failed attempts with content moderation. So I have a lot more faith that the government's going to go in a different direction. And I'll tell you why. Um, The main reason is that unlike some of the other digital files, I guess you could say, the other pieces of legislation that we've seen introduced in the last few years, this one has undergone tremendous consultation over the last two years. What the government's going to propose, I don't know, but based on the work we did as an expert panel back in 2022, it seemed like the government was moving away from what Fatima was talking about, which was this idea of this takedown model, right? Which is essentially a censorship model and ends up taking down all kinds of really important discourse and moving to something else, which is the idea that these companies have a duty of care or have a duty to be diligent when they put a service out into the world that they think carefully about issues of safety. And I would say part of safety is also protection of our freedoms, freedom of expression, protection of privacy, considering equality. So these are the things I'm expecting will be in the bill. Will they be? We'll find out. And if they're not, then I will be the first to be outlining why exactly that should be the approach. Uh, Matt, I do want to talk politics here for a second, because conservative leader Pierre Polyev has said the liberal government, quote, cannot differentiate between hate speech and speech they hate. Do the liberals run a political risk of Canadians seeing them as censors? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it would have been a tremendous mistake for them to try to push through the 2021 initiative. I think that would have been a very fair critique of what they had proposed there. I I think it has been a bit of a difficulty for times at this government of not fully representing the diversity of Canadian views and very mainstream views at times. But I I think that the key with this bill is this next online harms bill should not be an omnibus bill that attempts to address everything bad on the internet all in one. I really hope that they have a judicious bill that addresses some of the worst, some of the most easy to address content very directly and establishes a regulator who can enforce transparency on platforms and give us more information about what's going on on them, which maybe will justify further legislation in the future, but not trying to address every single thing in one, which I think will take it very off course. Emily, this is, of course, all happening in the world after the passage of the Online News Act, the Online Streaming Act. The Liberals have already gone to war, in a sense, with the social media companies. Is everyone ready for another battle over online harms? Oh, I think that there's a lot of fatigue right now. And I think this is one of the most important uh, bills that is going to be introduced whenever that happens. And I think that there's a, a bit of a lack of trust right now in what will be introduced, but also then the openness of the discussion that comes from that. I am hopeful, and and I think that maybe it's just because I want to be. 
about the importance of having a very clear debate about this. My biggest fear at the moment is that the second this bill is introduced, it's going to be, you know, positioned as the savior of the internet. And it's precisely what Matt said, is that if this is done well, it's actually going to be relatively narrow. It's not going to solve all the problems of online harms online. Um, it, it shouldn't do that. We should start narrower. But on the other side, these are really important issues that everybody should care about. And if it's labeled, and I'm sure it will be, as a censorship bill the second it's introduced, then we're just fighting the narrative instead of the substance. I'm glad to have had this conversation with both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks. My pleasure. Emily Laidlaw of the University of Calgary and Matt Hatfield of Open Media. That's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer this week is Kristen Everson. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.